Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. For those of you that were up here, thank you. You're a great encouragement to us all. Hey, um, we... Uh, Guy just told you about something that's going on in two weeks. Um, I hope you are making plans to be participants here. And um, somebody bring chocolate. Just somebody. Just somebody. That's all I'm saying. Listen, there, there, are, there are moments to celebrate. You know, there, there's the spiritual discipline of fasting, but there's also the spiritual discipline of celebrating. And you guys got to get your priorities right here is all I'm saying. Okay, um, make sure you got that date. But I want you to pull your calendars out because I want to give you another date to get on your calendar. This is important. Okay. Sunday, June the 9th. Sunday, June 9th. Uh, we're having another kind of celebration here at River Bluff. We do this annually, not always on June the 9th, but we do it annually. It's Kingdom Sunday. Okay, Kingdom Sunday is a day where we do a couple of things. One is we proclaim to ourselves, it's not about us. Okay, and we do that by going out and blessing other churches. And that's an important lesson that we have to keep in front of us that the gospel teaches us is it's not about us. It's a Sunday that we, we you know, right now we're the church gathered, but that Sunday will be the church scattered. We're going out to other brothers and sisters and we're saying we love being in this with you. We are grateful that God planted you where he planted you. And we love that we get to collaborate in kingdom efforts. We are not competitors. And so we go, we, we tell our people, take your weekly tithe, give it to that church. If, if you can find a way to serve them, serve them. If you can find some, some places to pray for them, pray for them. But it's, it's, a, it's a very important day. It's central to who we are as the people known as River Bluff Church is, uh, is Kingdom Sunday. So I hope you'll make plans to be a participant in that and not just look at it as a day to go to the beach. Um, you can go to the beach afterwards, okay? But a great way to celebrate Kingdom Sunday really is to participate in the life of another fellowship, okay? Um, Want to do that. Also, something else that I hope you will celebrate this week um, and put this on your calendar too, on your prayer calendar. I want to ask you to be praying for um, myself and other members of our team that are leaving tomorrow to fly into Ambato, Ecuador to, uh, uh, to, to, to hear from the Lord. I don't know how else to say that. We're, we're, uh, this team's going in. This is a vision trip. We're going in for the purpose of trying to hear from the Lord where, if at all, but where specifically would he have us work uh, in Ambato to help bring the gospel and help fan the flame of a church planting movement there. So we're going to have opportunities to meet some church planters. We're going to have an opportunity to connect at a seminary locally and just looking for what God might do relationally um, in, in those moments. If you want to join kind of the prayer I'm praying, I'm praying God open our eyes to persons of peace. Show us persons of peace, God, that you would have us serve with. And I'm going to ask the team if you guys would begin making your front down here. I'm going to come down and join you. And uh, I've asked Scott Cockhill. Come on, team. Come on. You're going to have to move faster than that in Ecuador. Um, 
the, uh, I've asked Scott Cockhill if he would come and he would lead our time of prayer. And I'm going to invite any of you down here that want to want to be a part of this, that just want to join in this time of prayer, to, to come and just lay hands and pray over the team and as, uh, as Scott leads us, okay? So, so let's just pray together, okay? As you're coming down, um, I wanted to, uh, to let you know that Ecuador is a, a very beautiful country and um, a little verse, quick little verse, one-liner from Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful are the mountains, are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Uh, please pray with me. Lord God, we pray that you will wrap your loving arms and protection around Pastor Dave Harden, David Douglas, Julie Welsh, Frank Aponic, and Pastor Joe Still as they get ready to head to Ecuador this week and the good works that you have planned for them. Lord God, we ask that you will be glorified by every aspect of their trip. We pray that each of them, as well as the Ecuadorian nationals with whom they work and share with, will have a personal and powerful encounter with you, our God. We ask that your unconditional love will radiate in and through each of their lives while they're gone. We pray, God, that you will put a hedge of protection around them starting right now and lasting throughout their trip. We pray, Lord, that Satan will be bound from anything that distracts anyone from hearing the voice of you, our God, in the areas where they'll be serving. We pray that all of this team will be sensitive to the leading and prodding of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that your word will be proclaimed with power and produce life-changing transformation in Ecuador. We pray, Lord, that you'll give each team member strength and good health throughout the trip. We also pray, Lord, that you'll protect and provide for their family members here at home while they're gone. God, I pray that you'll give wisdom to those speaking and teaching and strong listening ears, especially strong listening ears, to the people they come in contact with during this trip. Lord, I pray for divine appointments, both with those they share with as well as others they may encounter. We pray for all the team members and translators that they'll be bold and creative in sharing their faith in you, Lord. We pray that they'll make quick adjustments due to time changes, altitude, jet lag, and cultural changes. Lord, I close by begging you for revival for the people of Ecuador and the world to whom they may minister. It's in your precious name that we pray all these things. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. <laughs> oh, goodness. This is just a good place to be. Such a good place to be. Hey, um... Can I look you? I'd love to. We um, get your Bibles out and open to Ephesians chapter three. Um, this, this isn't part of the message, um, but I want to. I want you to understand. I guess sometimes maybe somebody sitting out there thinking, "Ambato, Ecuador." How did you get that? You know, um, one of the things that we are kind of in. Um, the DNA of River Bluff is some teaching that was done by a guy named Henry Blackaby years ago. And one of the things that Dr. Blackaby taught us was quit coming up with plans and asking God to bless them. Instead, look where God is at work. When he shows you where he's at work, that is your invitation to join him. Join him and go. Okay? So you don't have to worry about coming up with really cool plans. God will, God's got the plans. You just got to get in on them. 
And so one of the things that happened about Ecuador was God brought a family here who had served for years, the Troyer family had served for years working with church planters in Ecuador. God miraculously brought them to our church. And Tom Troyer, who had done a lot of that work, took Dave into Ecuador. Dave came back and said, Joe, I think there's something here. Elders, I think there's something here, something we need to check out. And so we were heading in that direction and then Tom, the Lord decided to take Tom home. Took him to heaven. So he's, he's, he's in his eternal glory for that work. But what he did was he, he gave a pathway for a, a, another church to partner with what God has been doing in Ecuador for decades. And we just get to go step into it and ask God, where would you have us now? What would you have us do? And so I just wanted you to understand. I know sometimes people probably think, yeah, those elders, they get a dart board and they just stick a map on the wall and they throw darts, you know, and that's how, how things. That's not how we do things, okay? We really, we really seek to understand, Lord, what are you telling us and how do we get in that? That has nothing to do with Ephesians chapter 3, however. Um, so if you've got your Bibles open there, let's read it together. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3. We're, for those of you that may be new today, we're this, we're, we've been in a study that we're calling Connect and we're just walking through Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now if you're using one of our house Bibles, um, there's, a, there's a long dash right there. Long dash. Some, some translations have three or four dots. Just a long dash. I want to, I'll explain that in a little bit, but it's important. Um, verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by the revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very, I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what we just read is a very unusual diversion for Paul. And that's why, why that particular dash is there. It, that, that dash is actually in the middle of a sentence. Verse, sometimes we read verses and don't realize that you know, a sentence may last five, six, seven more verses. Um, this is right smack dab in the middle of a sentence that Paul, Paul has started. And he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you, Gentiles, dash, pause. And here's what I think. 
here's, and it's just me, not me. There's people far smarter than me to inform me what, what to think about and pray through here. But it, it, was, it was like Paul was heading in this one incredible direction coming out of Ephesians chapter 2. Now remember, he's writing a letter. Have you ever been writing a letter and you were kind of heading in a certain direction all of a sudden you had another thought? And you have to figure out, okay, how do, how, how, do, how do I get over here? Well, Paul had that happen in him in that moment, it looks like. Because the next, the passage that we read, the, the, it gets really choppy. It's not very grammatically sensible. It's just, it, and, and it's interesting that that goes through the first 13 verses. Then when you get to verse 14, he starts back over with the same phrase he began verse 1 with. For this reason. So it's kind of like verses 1 through 13 are a rant. He, he kind of goes off, you know, it's a sidebar conversation. He's, he's thinking this, he's writing this, he starts to write something and then he stops. Kind of dead in his tracks. And what Paul addresses, I believe, is Paul realizes that when he makes that statement about being a prisoner, that it was going to impact his friends in Ephesus. And it was going to, to cause them suffering. It was going to cause them hardship. And I, I just, um, again, I'm thankful for Lord's timing on this. Uh, because uh, that we're going to address this issue of suffering today. When I think about what's gone in our world recently. Especially as it relates to those who follow Christ. Some of you are aware that uh, in, uh, in Burkina Faso, this recently there were there were six Christians killed a pastor um, two of his sons were, were gunned down in church last Sunday a week ago um, the week before that Easter Sunday um, in Sri Lanka uh, 253 people were killed you know um, uh, in, in Easter celebrations uh, over that city and th those families are suffering right now those that are left behind are suffering. There are still many very, very injured. And Paul is writing into, kind of stepping into this in this letter. He's stepping into uh, the suffering because he knew they were facing suffering in this life. And so he begins writing. He says, I'm writing from prison. He's saying, I'm, I'm a prisoner. I'm, 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 I'm in prison right now. And while, when he writes that, he thinks of something. And again, I think there's this strong indication in the following verses, especially when you get to verse uh, 13. He says, I'm right, I said all this just before verses 1 through 12. I said all that so that I can say, please don't lose heart. That's what he says in verse 13. Please, please don't lose heart. In New American Standard Translation, it says, therefore I ask you not to lose heart. And when he uses that, therefore, he's going back to the verses before it. He's saying, please don't lose heart because of this. Because Paul knew that his prison experience was going to be a huge discouragement to the church at Ephesus. So he, he kind of stops mid-thought and decides, I've got to address this. And so what he does is he engages the suffering that he knows that they're going to experience, that his friends are going to experience. And here's one of the realities about this book. Not just this one letter, but all throughout this book. This book takes a realistic approach to human suffering. 
all throughout it. It doesn't hide from it. Every, every author practically deals with the issue of human suffering and, and Paul is no different. And this is what I want to think of today is, as I've studied on that verse, those verses this week. This is kind of the first big idea this morning that I want you to be captured by and it's this. That though it's a beautiful mystery, Paul refers to the mystery of the gospel a lot in this passage. The gospel confronts hard realities. Though the gospel is a beautiful mystery, it always confronts hard realities because this life is hard. This life is difficult. And it's not just difficult for bad people. It's difficult for good people, the best of people, righteous people. Because here's the reality. How many of you have seen that bumper sticker or maybe even have it on your vehicle? Life is good. For the most part it is. But it's not always. But here's the deal. When it's hard and life is hard, God is good. Always. God is, God is always good. Even in the midst of the difficulty of life. And again, the Bible doesn't hold anything back. And Paul is not holding anything back. So he stops kind of mid-sentence and says, I've got to address this. And it's interesting, he doesn't dive in here and, and start giving them the devil about, you need to suck it up, buttercup. You need to just hang in there. He doesn't do that. What he does is he presses in and he says, I want you to understand something about this. I want, he engages their suffering. He doesn't just try to gloss over it. And the Bible does this. The Bible engages our suffering. In Matthew chapter 11, we, we read a story uh, about John the Baptist. Now some of you will remember John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was the first one to, to really declare this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He, he made that public declaration. And he encouraged his disciples to follow Jesus. To leave him and follow Jesus. He encouraged that. And then he's arrested and he's put in prison. And, and while he's there, now again this is the guy who said behold the Lamb of God. While he's there he, he sends a messenger to Jesus. And Matthew records this in chapter 11. And, and basically what happens is he, this messenger goes and, and gives this word that from, from John. He says, are, are you the one? Are you the one we're supposed to be looking for or, or, or is there another? Should, we be look, should I be looking for somebody else? Now he, 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 he put it in that third person to start with. But it was really about John at that moment. Because he was suffering and his suffering brought doubts into his mind. It, it, it caused him to struggle. And so he's really saying, if you're the Messiah, why am I suffering? If you're, if you're who I said you were, why, why is your servant dealing with this? Paul knows that his friends are going to have the same questions. Paul knows that his friends are going to be thinking about Paul suffering in prison and thinking, Paul, if you're God's servant, why isn't God, why isn't God stopping this? Why isn't God doing something about this? And see, here's the truth that, that Paul knew. Paul knew that sometimes when it comes to human suffering, it is more painful when it's somebody that you love that's going through the suffering than it is when you endure suffering yourself. Because there's a helplessness attached to it as well. You feel what they're feeling in many ways. But on top of that, you feel helpless to do anything about it. And so Paul realizes his friends are going to feel like that. They're going to feel not only his sorrow for being in prison, but they're, they're going to feel absolutely helpless to, to do anything about it. And so in verse 13, Paul sums all that up. He says, please don't lose heart. 
So just don't lose heart. And here's why. Because Paul knows this. When it comes to suffering, the first thing that happens is your heart sinks. Satan takes your heart, your passion. He takes that out of the game. And you start feeling numb. And, and you may start feeling a, a, a little bitter. You may begin to fall into resentment. And Paul says, please don't do that. Don't let that happen to your heart. Keep, keep your heart in the game. Because the point he's trying to make and the point that the Bible makes over and over again is yes, life is hard. But God is at work here. And so Paul, in these verses, verses 1 through 13, he's coming not as, he's coming not as a lecturer now. He's coming as their pastor. He's coming and saying from a pastor's heart, I, I'm, I'm pulling back on this kind of, you know, theology lesson. I, I just, I want to I love on you because I don't want your heart to be lost in this. And so it's interesting to me some of the things he does here because then he, he begins talking about and he uses the word repetitively through the opening parts of this passage. He talks about the mystery. The mystery of, uh, of the gospel. He uses it actually four times here in verses 3, 4, 6, and 9. And, and Paul says, it's my job. I've been appointed by God to proclaim this mystery. Now, what, what, is the, what does this word mystery mean? Because it has a translation problem in our language. Because right here, this word mystery means almost the opposite of what we think of when we, when we think mystery. When you, when you think of a mystery, what do you think of? Kind of something you got to solve. Something you gotta, you, you gotta figure out, you know. That you, you gotta, it's hidden from you and if you want to understand it, you gotta dig in. Discover something. Kathy and I like watching kind of mysteries. You know, police stories, those kinds of things. And one of the things that we like to do is, because, because you know, we're just competitive a little bit. We, we like to try to figure out who can solve it first. And so we say it out loud. You know, we, we have to look at each other and say, I think it's so and so. And um, so we, you know, we kind of do that because we're, we're trying to figure out, we're trying to discover who, 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 who's done it, you know, kind of thing. And I'll just go ahead and confess and say, she's a little better at it than I am, okay? Just, that, I'll just be true, you know? But the word that Paul uses here is not that whodunit kind of mystery, not something that you can figure out. In, in fact, the word that Paul uses here is, is, uh, for mystery is a mystery that can only be revealed by God. It's so, it's so unbelievable, it's so intense, you would never figure it out. It's that kind of, of mystery. Because it defies all human logic. The mystery of the gospel defies all human reasoning. It is counterintuitive. The only way you would get at it is it has to be revealed to you by God because you'll never even guess. And so when Paul's using this, that, that word mystery, he's saying this is something that got revealed. It's been a mystery, but it got revealed to me by God. There, there are two other words that Paul uses multiple times uh, in this section of the scripture. One is grace. And the other is gospel. And he kind of ties those ideas together. and Kind of this idea of the gospel of grace. This gospel of your salvation. This, this great mystery that can only be revealed by God. And, and here's kind of the second big idea of the day that I want you to be captured by. Though it is a beautiful mystery, the gospel does clearly display the wonder of grace. The gospel really does display the wonder of grace. And I want, I want you to, to see how wonderful grace is by doing something this morning. I want to do a little compare and contrast for a minute, okay? I want to compare and contrast the law and grace. 
Okay, here's, here's what I want to do. The, the Ten Commandments, one of the things that you will never find in this book as a reference to the Ten Commandments is the word mystery. There was nothing mysterious about law. Law was just kind of in your face. It just, it's just kind of the way things were. So there's no mystery when it comes to the law. When you think about the golden rule, do unto others kind of thing. There's no, there's no mystery to it. It's just, it's almost like common sense. It's like everybody understands that. Everybody kind of just gets that. You know? Let me tell you what the gospel is not. Let me say it this way. The gospel is not, you live a good life. You keep those commandments. You live by the golden rule. And here's what's going to happen. God will bless you. God will take care of you. He will answer your prayers. That seems logical, but that's not the gospel. See, the gospel is exactly the opposite. It, it, it's just completely the opposite. And so it's a mystery that we don't get. Now, most people understand. Most people believe. Most people live by this code of the law. Most religions have as their basis a law code. Do this, do this, do this. God will take care of you. That's kind of, kind of just human logic. But the gospel is just completely counterintuitive. See, the gospel is the Son of God coming to earth and triumphing over evil through weakness and suffering. It's the Son of God coming to earth and he won by choosing to lose. It's the Son of God coming to earth gaining everything first by sacrificing everything. It's him overcoming sin and death for all of us by taking all of it onto himself. He just took it, he absorbed it all. And so, as a Christian, when you're, when you're in Christ, what the Bible says the gospel teaches is that uh, you are simultaneously a sinner yet completely accepted by God. That's, that's what the gospel is. You're, you're simultaneously this horrible, wretched sinner and yet you are absolutely loved and justified and accepted in God's sight. That's a mystery, folks. It's completely counterintuitive to, to the way we would think. We, we, we just, it goes against every human instinct that despite how evil you may be or have what you have done, you know. See, the law of God is never called a mystery because everybody gets it. But the idea that you've been saved by grace, that you're simultaneously sinful and righteous in the sight of God is like, we can't, we can't get there on our own. God has to show us that. Now here's the deal. Let's say you decide, I'm going to live by that first framework. I'm going to live by that, that kind of law framework. Usually when you start out living by the law framework, you start feeling like, yeah, this feels good. You get a little success. You keep a couple of them. And then guess what happens? You finally fall off. The, at some point, it happens to everybody, you fall off the edge. You, you just, and my wife is saying, please don't. You, you, just, you just fall off the edge. Because you can't keep them. And eventually what happens, the, the, the law framework will eventually crush you. Because you can't keep it. You, you, there's no way that you are able to keep and, and live under that framework. But... If you, if you live according to the gospel, the good news that you are saved by the sheer grace of God, that no matter what you've done or who you did it with or how long you did it, God loves you. And he has a plan for you. And in Christ, you can be saved. 
Everything wiped out. You, when you come to that for the first time, here's what happens. You think, that is stupid. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, you may not have said that exactly like that. But your brain registers it. That can't be. It just, it can't be like, that's why so many people reject the gospel. Because they're, they cannot work it out in their pea brain. Because everything in this world is against that. And so they, they, they can't get their mind around it. They, 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 they can't push into that. It doesn't make sense. But here's the truth. The longer you live in it, the more you look at it, the more you experience it, even in your continued failure, the greater the wisdom seems. The more beautiful the gospel becomes. And you finally realize it is the only way. The law only kills me. Just by itself, the law crushes me. But the gospel, man, it, it is wisdom. And so here's a big question for the day. Is the gospel for you? Is it, is it, is it this counterintuitive, astounding wonder? Is it, is, it, is it this thing that is beautiful and yet you, 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 you can't get your mind completely around it? You're kind of like the angels that, that Peter wrote about in First Peter uh, chapter 1. You just, you long to look at it. You want to understand it. You, you want to get it. But it's just counterintuitive. That there are depths of it, you know. You're seeing new things. It's, it's liberating you in new ways and... And what you find yourself saying is, I don't think I'll ever completely understand the gospel. Because if that's you, then probably what's happening is you're starting to understand the gospel. On the other hand, if what you think about when you think about the gospel is, I got this. I understand the gospel perfectly. You got a question about the gospel, you come ask me. If, if that's your attitude, good chance you don't understand the gospel at all. Good chance you, you've missed it. And Paul is talking. It's, it's a wonder here. It's just, it's, it's a wonder. You can't grasp it except as the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. Is the gospel doing that in you? Is it, is it this joyful, beautiful, wonderful mystery that you're understanding, you're seeing unfold and you want more of it? Because if it is, then you're grasping the gospel. Let's press on a little further into the passage. Look at some of what Paul says in verses 7 through 9. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. I was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Here's what Paul's saying. That's my job. It's what I've, I've been called to do. It's my goal in life to proclaim, to tell of the unsearchable riches of Christ. I want to make it plain to everybody. I want everybody to see the absolute brilliance of the gospel. But Paul also begins showing us how that's going to happen. See, God has a plan. He has a plan A. There's no plan B. For how this brilliance, this beauty of the gospel is going to get out there. Paul tells us about it in verses 10 and 11. I want, to, I want us to look at those and read those. And then we're going to start in verse 11 and then back into verse 10. Kind of do it backwards. Paul says this. Through the church. 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now in verse 11 what he's saying is the great purpose, the great purpose of God, he's going to accomplish it in Christ through, through what? You know, now... If you go back, it's been about 10 weeks since we were in Ephesians chapter 1. But in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul just breaks out on this glorious statements about Jesus and how God is bringing everything together. The whole world is going to be brought together, the whole universe in Jesus. So he starts painting this, this, this incredible picture. You know, we see that in, in, uh, in, in chapter 1. And he, 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 here's what Paul is addressing. He's addressing the reality that everything in this world is falling apart. You know, he, he, when he's writing to his friends in Ephesus, things there are, are just falling apart. Everything's just falling apart. Let me ask you. Just think about this. What is, what is war? What, 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 is, what is violent crime? What is racism? You know, what, what, what are those things? See, God's intent were for people to be together. To, to, to be connected. But it's coming uh, uh, apart. Society falling apart. Relationships falling apart. What, what about this? What is disease? What, 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 is, what is hunger? What is, what is death? It, it's, it's related to your body falling apart. Anybody other than me feel like parts of your body are falling apart these days you know just falling up God never intended that God's plan had always been you go back to the opening Genesis chapters 1 2 and 3 God's plan was for everything to coalesce for there to be harmony in everything that your body would stay together that your relationships would stay together that everything in the universe would stay together but sin came in and it started tearing all of that apart but Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, in Christ, God is going to put all that together. He's going to bring it all back together. Someday in Christ Jesus, all of this is going to be put back together forever. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more tearing. There'll be no more tears. All of that stuff will be, there'll, there'll be peace on earth. God is, God is working to do that. And we talked about, for weeks, we talked about that purpose. And now we get to verse 10 in chapter 3. And I love the way the NIV translates this. So I want you to see it this way. He says, his intent, speaking about God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. If you write in your Bible, you may want to circle that word manifold. The manifold wisdom means the multifaceted, beautiful brilliance of the gospel. It, it is intended to be made known through the church. Now this brings us to what I think of as the third kind of big idea for the day that I hope you get. And it's this, that though it's a beautiful mystery, the gospel reveals the brilliance, the multifaceted beauty of the church. And here's what Paul is saying. It is, it is the community of believers. Not just an individual in it. No, no matter how great that individual might be. It's not, about, it's not about the individual. It's about the community. Because through the community is God's plan for healing to come. 
It's in Christian community that the world, we talked about this a little bit last week, that the world will most readily be able to see the incredible future God has planned for everyone. Great theologian, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce said this about this verse, Ephesians 3.10. He says, the church thus appears to be God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. Now, just think about that for a minute. What, what he's saying is that the church, capital C church, and then bring it down to the local church. The, the, the local church, River Bluff Church, is like the pilot project for God's eternal glory coming. It's supposed to start putting that uh, on display. It's uh, the Jews and Gentiles brought together. Races coming together. The, the gospel brings and tears down divisions. It eradicates this and, and takes that which was separated and starts putting it back together. We talked about that, that last week. He says it, it's the healing of racial division. It's a foretaste of the glory to come. It's a, it's a foretaste of all the hostile elements in the universe coming back and, 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 and being cohesive once again. That that's the church in, in all its glory. And he goes on to say that this, this church is supposed to be this new society. Not, not just a fellowship. You know, not where you just get together and eat fried food. Although that's not bad sometimes. But that is not all that it's about. But it, it, it should display God's intent. It should display the future that God has. It, it's a place where families should find strengthening. Where business and economic, you know, practices should be just. It's a place where race relations should be shown as beautiful. It's, it's a place where healing in Christ should be seen. Because God wants to put on display through the church uh, emotional healing. Spiritual healing. Psychological. It's the place where God clearly desires for his glory to be demonstrated on the planet. And what Paul is saying, that the manifold wisdom of what that future is going to look like is to be exhibited through the church. Now, Paul takes it one step further in this passage. And I want you to, to just kind of, this is, we're about to jump into the stratosphere. Okay, you're ready to make a really big theological jump here for a minute because this, this is going to be a little crazy. So just bear with me for a minute, okay? This is maybe a little out there for some of you. Just hold on to your theological pants for a minute, okay? Because, but I want you to see this. Paul, Paul writes this, he says, Through the church, this brilliant wisdom of God, this brilliant gospel, should be made known to whom? Did you see who it's supposed to be made known to? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Again, through the church, this is who it's supposed to be made known to. Now again, this, this is kind of outer limit kind of stuff going on right here. Uh, when Paul writes that phrase, to the rulers and the authorities, what's he talking about? I think he's talking about angels and demons. When you get over to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, and you start looking at this section that he writes about, about spiritual warfare. He's talking about powers and principalities. These rulers, he's talking about things going on in the heavenly. You know there's a heavenly realm, right? There's stuff that you cannot see that's going on around you all the time. And, and what Paul is saying here, the church is not only... Back in... De I may be getting off my nose. No, I think I'm close. Back in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 4 God, God decided I'm going, to, I'm going to make a people for myself to put me on display to the nations. 
And so he called Israel out to make a nation out of them. He said, I'll, I'll be your God if you'll be my people. Um, you follow, follow my teachings, my commands. Keep those and it'll, it'll go well for you. That's kind of the Deuteronomy 4. So God had this plan in the Old Testament to use the nation of Israel that way to be a light to all the nations. They didn't do such a hot job. In the New Testament, Paul is writing and saying, that's God's plan for the church now. A new community, a new society in the church is supposed to be that. It's supposed to spread my glory to the nations. And, this is, he never said this about Israel. He said this about the church. And, it's supposed to display my glory to the powers and principalities. It, to, 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 to what's going on it, out in the spiritual realm. It's supposed to put that uh, on, on display. So this is part of the beauty of the church th th that he's saying here. Now, last week, just, just to bring you back to something I said last week. Well, last week, I, I, I mentioned a survey that had recently be done, been done that said that 87% of Americans answered this question affirmatively. Can you be a strong uh, Christian? Can you have a vibrant Christian experience and not participate in the life of the church? And 87% of Americans said, of course you can. Paul has no frame of reference for that whatsoever. Paul, what, what Paul is writing here said, no way. Th th that cannot happen. You will not see the glory of God. You will not see the power of God. He says that's unrealistic. It can't happen because God has said he wants to display the beauty and power and brilliance of the wisdom of God through the church. It's not indispensable. Now there are a hundred ways that we could talk about proving that. I'm not going to try to do that. But I do want to throw just one thought out here to, to help you understand this. Let me start this way. How did you get the life that you have today? The life that you're living right now, how did you get to that? Now, here's, here's what most of us would probably, our answer would probably be something like this. It was a series of decisions that I made throughout my life that got me here to where I'm at today. A series of, of choices that I made that, that got me here. And I would say, I, I hear you, but that, that really misses the biggest piece of the puzzle of how you have the life you have today. One of the primary reasons you have the life you have today is because of where you were born. The family you were born into, the, the, the economic and political system you were born into, the nation you were born into, significantly communicates and, and draws out who you are today. Now the decisions that you made in those environment played a role but the most important part was that, that context of, of the life you have today. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe that the gospel should change you? I think anybody who you know is a follower of Jesus Christ believes yes the gospel should change us. How? How does the gospel's transformation, how does the gospel change your life? Well, what Paul is advocating here is it happens in the context of the church. It's not going to happen just you out there by yourself. Paul is saying it's going to happen here. You've got to be a part of a new family, a new community. 
You, you, it, 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 the brilliance of the church and the brilliance of the wisdom of God is only going to come to you that way. Now that, that word again, this brilliance, this manifold, multifaceted, multicolored beauty of, of the church. I, I think part of it is referring to, to, to God's plan for it to be racially, ethnically diverse. But I think he's talking about even more than that. And again, it's because Paul's not just lecturing students. He's, he's got a pastor's heart for people who are suffering. And so he takes this kind of top shelf theology, but he's bringing it back down because these people are discouraged. These people are, are facing difficulty. So, so how does that work? And that brings us to what I, I think of as the, 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 the fourth big idea from this, and it's this. That though it's a beautiful mystery, the gospel proclaims a freedom that we have in Christ. A freedom that we have in Christ. Now, I want to give you kind of three points about this freedom, kind of as, as we're heading downhill now. And, and the first one is this. Paul shows you this. In Christ Jesus, we have a freedom to know that nothing we suffer is for nothing. You can have a freedom in Christ Jesus to know that nothing that you suffer is for nothing. How many of you are familiar with um, Joni Erickson Tata? You know who Joni Erickson Tata is? She's a young lady that was injured in a swimming accident. Uh, she was a quadriplegic. She is a, uh, an award-winning author um, now and a devoted follower uh, of Jesus Christ. And early in her recovery, she ended up in a hospital in uh, Baltimore. And she was, the, the setting was she was in a ward. So there were other women in this room with her um, who were also suffering. She writes about this particular thing in her book, A Step Further. Now, Joni writes specifically about a young woman that was in there named Denise Walters. Denise Walters was a 17-year-old young lady who kind of had the world by the tail. She, she just, um, she was a senior in high school. She was a, a cheerleader, one of the most popular kids in her school, just the, the all-American kid and one day as she was kind of bounding upstairs in her school her legs gave out her legs got shaky and weak and just kind of gave out and um, somebody helped her up and she kind of went through the day but as she went through the day things got worse she just kind of got shakier and uh, the strength left her so she went home uh, didn't stay for practice went home and took a nap and when she woke up she was paralyzed from the waist down and so obviously they, they rushed her to the hospital. Um, a, a few days later, uh, she's paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, a, a couple weeks after that, she goes blind. And there's just this rapid kind of digress in, in her life. And they, they diagnose that she has this rapid progression of, of multiple sclerosis that has attacked her body. And it ultimately t took her life. But she had been placed in this room with Joni Erickson and um, she, couldn't, she couldn't move, she couldn't talk. Uh, well, she could talk a little bit to begin with, but she couldn't see. And you know, when she first gets there, friends come from school. Her mom comes every day, reads the Bible to her. They were both, they were both Christians. Every night her mom would come and, and read the Bible and pray with her. But eventually, this, this takes her life. And it devastated Joni, she writes. Just devastated her. 
because she had finally gotten to the place in her own recovery where she started to understand that sometimes there can be purpose in our suffering. Sometimes in our suffering, God can grow something else in us. She had come to understand that. Sometimes our suffering can be used to, to give testimony of, of the goodness of God. But now she's watched this 17-year-old this beautiful girl suffer in an environment where she can't talk. She can't move. She, she's barely alive, so there's not any spiritual growth going on. She can't give testimony to, to the goodness of God. And so Joni lapses back into kind of a state of devastation over her own life. She, she, she begins to suffer depression again. And over this suffering. And so she, she was having Bible studies. People were regularly coming in with her and friends doing Bible study. And one night she, she just broke down and began sharing with um, one of the ladies in, in the, that was leading the Bible study what was going on. She just kind of fell apart there. And this lady opened her Bible up to Ephesians chapter 3 and read verse 10. And she read it out of the Amplified Translation. I want to read it to you out of that translation. It says this. The purpose is that through the church, the complicated, many-sided wisdom of God in all its infinite variety and immeasurable aspects might now be made known to the angelic rulers and authorities, principalities and powers in the heavenly spheres. And Joni writes, I got it. I finally understand. And so the next day she wrote a letter to Denise's mom. And she wrote that Ephesians 3.10 reference. And then she wrote these words. I am sure the angels and demons stood amazed as they watched the uncomplaining patience of your daughter. See, Joni got it. When you see suffering that you can't explain, that makes no sense to you, can you get it that there's something unseen going on possibly? Can, can, can you get it that even if no one else on this planet ever sees your suffering, if nobody else ever sees it, that you are on a cosmic camera? And that the powers and principalities, I don't know how many angels and demons there are. I, I'm, I'm imagining billions, you know, just some of the stuff I read in scripture. They're, they're, we'll, we'll just go with lots. Okay, you're good with lots? There, there, there are lots of them. And when you suffer in Christ, you are glorifying God to the angelic beings and to the demonic beings. To the powers and principalities. Your suffering, those unseen by men and women, is making a difference in the heavenly realm. Now, I can't prove this. This is Joe Think, okay? This is not the gospel. This is, this is what, when I read this, what I, what I kind of see in this, and I believe it though. I believe when you suffer in Christ, in a way that gives glory to God, even if it's unseen by others, I believe the angel, you know the Bible says there's a war going on in heaven, in the heavenlies. There, 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 is, there is fighting between warring angels, fighting against the demonic hordes on your behalf. 
There's this war that's going on around you that's unseen. And I believe what Paul is writing about here, when the angels see you suffering in Christ in a God glorified, remember they're, they're amazed at the gospel. When they, see the, when they see you living out the gospel, those warring angels, I think it encourages them. I think they come out swinging. I think it discourages the demonic elements that are seeking to attack you. See, when, when we live out the gospel, the, that beautiful manifold wisdom of God, that multifaceted glory of God, it makes a difference in the temporal, in the here and now. But it makes a difference where you can't see it even, is what Paul is saying. That blows my mind. Blows my mind. And so what Paul is saying is nothing we suffer is for nothing. Next kind of message here, Paul says, is in Christ, we have the freedom to know that no suffering can really harm you. There is no suffering that you're going to go through that can ultimately really harm you. Paul starts this passage, remember, saying, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Now, he doesn't say, I hope you notice, that I'm a prisoner of Rome. Though he was in a Roman prison. He, he's not saying, I'm a prisoner to this person. Because of his attitude. Because of, of his mindset. When you, get, when you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, he writes this long list of things that he suffered. He, he talks about five different times he was beaten with 39 lashes. Um, three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned one time. He talks about being shipwrecked and abandoned. He talks about uh, being, making the Jews angry, making the Gentiles angry. He just goes on and on. But then when you get down to, to, to verse 30 he says, but if I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. Earlier he had been talking about boasting in his, uh, in, you know, in his heritage. But now he's talking about, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in that stuff. I'm going to boast in where, where I'm weak because here's the deal. Those things don't get me down. The circumstances of my imprisonment don't, don't destroy me because they don't really have me in jail. Now, it wasn't that he was denying the reality, but he had a different mindset. Some of you know that years ago, I worked in the post office. I was a, I was a mailman. We delivered for you. Um, while I was there, I watched two, two guys who had both put in for a supervisor's position. And... Neither of them got it. Neither one of them got it. And one guy just kind of blew it off and went on with his business. He just, it didn't, it didn't seem to phase him too much. He was just unchanged. His personality didn't change. It, it wasn't, wasn't anything like that. But the other guy, it devastated him. And it made him angry. And he stayed angry until eventually he quit. He got mad and quit. Uh, I mean, there were moments where you think, this dude could, could go postal. There's a reason why they call it going postal, by the way. Um, th this, this could really happen to this guy. And, and, and here's what those differences were about. You know, in, in, in Matthew records in chapter 6, Jesus' words, where your treasure is, say it with me, there your heart is also. It's the truth about humanity, whether you're in Christ or not. We all 
put our hearts somewhere. We all have this treasure that says, this is what I'm really about. This, this, is, this is what really defines me. This is where I really get my hope. This is my, one guy, it was this career path and that supervisor's job. The other guy, it wasn't. It was something else. I don't, I don't know what it was, but it, it, it wasn't because it didn't, it didn't destroy him. Now here's the reality. Everybody sticks their treasure into something. Every, everybody does that. Paul is saying, this is my treasure. My treasure is not related to this prison thing. My, my treasure is that I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I, I, I'm in Christ. I'm not really their prisoner. You know, they can bind me, but they can't hurt me. Really, they can't hurt me. Look what he says in verse 12. We have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. This is what we have. He goes on. I love the way the New Century Version translates this. In Christ, we can come before God with freedom and without fear. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm really free. I'm in a Roman prison, but I am completely free. How? How, how does that make, how is he simultaneously in a prison but free? Because of where he put his treasure. Because his treasure was in Christ. You know, it was, it was in Christ. It was through faith in him. Because of the grace of Christ. And because of that, he knew that he was in God's care. He was confident that God had this, that God knew where he was. He was loved by God. And that's, that was the treasure for Paul. And here's what I hope you, you see what that means is nobody and no thing on this planet, if your treasure is in Christ, can get at that treasure. N nothing can get at it. If you make that your treasure, if you make that your heart, you know, if, if that becomes you, you become, you become untouchable, you become bulletproof, you can sing with the MC Hammer, can't touch this, Okay? You can just walk around singing that chorus all day because, but here's the question. Have you made that move yet? Is your treasure in Christ or is it something else in this world? Is it in your work? Is it in the way your body looks? Is it in your children? Is it in your education? What is it in? Because if it's not in Christ, it can be touched and messed with. It can, it can ultimately be destroyed. But if it's in Christ, it, it can't be. Lastly, in Christ Jesus, we have freedom to know one more thing. And that is that all our suffering will be for glory. All of our suffering in this life will be for glory. Paul says in verse 13, my sufferings are for your glory. How, how, does, how does that work? How, how, how does that work? Jesus is the only person because of his perfect life who could have earned freedom and confidence to approach God because he lived a perfect life. And at the end of his life, what happened? He got shut out so we could be invited in. He got, he got bound up and strapped down, nailed down so that, so that we could be free. He, he, got, he got cast out into darkness so that we could approach God with confidence. 
Jesus took every bit of that suffering to keep it from destroying you. To, to keep that from happening to you. To keep you from ever being cast out from God. So, so that now all suffering that you might endure can actually transform you. It can actually, the pressure of suffering, you, you know this, coal under pressure for a long time becomes what? A multifaceted, beautiful, brilliant diamond. What Paul is trying to say is this, you under the pressure of suffering can become something beautiful in the hand of God. It, see, in Christ, the suffering that you may endure, even if it's suffering and helplessness for somebody, the suffering that you endure can make you into something more gorgeous because we become like him. And you can just see this in Paul because what he says back in verse 1 about his suffering, he says it's on behalf of you. It, it, it's for your sake. See, Paul says, I am content to be in prison for you because, because of Jesus. And he, he handles his suffering because he knows this. He knows that glory is coming. He knows that. Now, here's the deal for you that are in Christ. If you're here today and you are in Christ, you should be encouraged because of this. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he's bringing his glory with him to share with you. And he's making something beautiful of you now. Right now. So be aware that you're on a cosmic camera and that you have the ability in Christ to make a difference in the heavenlies now. Right now. Let's pray. When, when you think about that which you're suffering right now, because everybody in this room is suffering something, are you asking yourself, am I doing it in such a way that I realize it can't touch me? That I'm doing it in such a way that it's not gonna be for nothing? Am I, am I facing this in such a way that I know it's, it's leading to a, a deeper, richer future glory? Or am I just stuck? Because if that's true, if you just feel stuck in suffering, then probably the question you need to ask right now is, dear God, where is my treasure? What is my treasure in? Because then the Bible says, I need to repent of where I've put my treasure and bring it back and just put it in Christ alone. And maybe that's the decision you need to make today is right where you're at. Maybe the Lord has revealed to you that your treasure's not in him right now. And that's why, why your suffering feels like it's destroying you instead of glorifying you. But maybe you're here today. And maybe you're here and you're not in Christ. Maybe you've never trusted him with your life. And for the very first time, you've heard that contrast to the gospel. Maybe, maybe you've been in that framework where you have said, 
yeah, I do that. I keep the law. I try to live good. I live by the golden rule. I try to keep the commandments. And some reason you think God owes you something because of that. And, and you feel like you've been gypped. Well, that's not the gospel. That's not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is, is you're a sinner. And then in the sight of God, he's going to judge you. But because of what Jesus did on Calvary's cross, you can be set free from that judgment and let Jesus have taken on all of your sin and you acknowledge that and you thank him for that and you accept his sacrifice in place of yours and you say, Jesus, I want to trust you with my whole life, with my whole being. I want to follow you. I repent of trying to do it the other way. And I come to you now, Jesus. And the Bible says when you do that, you'll be saved. And that that salvation is not just to get you into heaven. That's a part of it. But it is, it is right now to transform you. To begin transforming your life today. So that you're suffering when it comes and it's going to come. You will know it will be for your glory. And for his. And so maybe right where you're at, you just want to cry out to Jesus and and say, Jesus, I want you now. I need you now. And the Bible says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Father, we come, all of us, we come at this moment of decision asking questions about our treasure. Have we invested our life somewhere else or are we in you? Are we trusting you, Christ, with our life? Lord, we thank you for the beauty that in this life, in our suffering, you're with us and we can do it in such a way that it makes a difference in the world now and in the heavenlies. God, help us be your people on mission with you, living out the beauty, the full measure of that mysterious gospel. And let us be the church here at River Bluff that puts that on display both to the world and to the powers and principalities. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.